Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter and I'm here with my fellow frantic book hoarder, Booktopian Sarah McDooling. And we have the enormous honour today to be seated across from Val McDermott. How are you doing, Val? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, Val McDermott, you're a gold dagger winner. Um, you've uh, written what in Australian terms would be called a shit ton of books. Um, possibly best known for the um, Carol Jordan, Tony Hill novels, um, of which the most recent book, How the Dead Speak, is the 11th. Um, and Sarah and I were lucky enough to get hold of an advanced copy, which was emblazoned in huge letters with The Queen of Crime. Um, do you do your writing on a throne and do you have Scottish terriers in place of corgis? How if does it work? the answer is not oh. yes, I would oh. be sad. Well, see, the thing is, fundamentally, I'm a Republican. So I, I feel slightly awkward about the title of Queen of Crime. Uh, but uh, should be We should think of a better one. Yeah. Prime Minister of Crime. Yeah, President of Crime. Yeah. But, um, I was once described by a journalist in a term that quite appealed to me as the gobby shop steward of crime. Yeah. And I think that kind of probably suits a bit better than, than the sort of regal sense of, of, of queenliness. You heard it here. That's the new title. <laughs> um, you began writing crime uh, in the 1980s. Um, how, what was your impression of the book world and especially the crime fiction world then and how do you think it's changed? Well, um, when I first started writing in, in British crime fiction, most of what was available was village mysteries and police procedurals. And I didn't really feel comfortable with, with either of those categories. I didn't know enough about how the police worked. And it was only years later when I said this to Colin Dexter, uh, he just burst out laughing and said, uh, you just make it up, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> I had written five Inspector Morse books before I stepped inside a police station. Oh, that's <laughs> and I didn't know you could just make it up. You know, I thought the police would come round and knock on your door and give you a bad time. But uh, So that was kind of out of the window for me. And the village mystery was strange for me because, you know, all these villages in the home counties were nothing like the villages I knew growing up. I grew up in the mining communities of, of Fife. And, you know, we did not have retired colonels of the Indian Army. <laughs> so I was kind of not quite sure what I was going to write. And then uh, a friend of mine living in America sent me a copy of Sarah Paretsky's first book, Indemnity Only. And that was a light bulb moment for me. So he was a, a woman with agency, with, with a brain and a sense of humour. And she didn't have to get the guys in every time the heavy lifting needed to be done. She just did it herself. And the books felt that the book felt as if the crime was somehow organic. It happened because of the lives people led in Chicago, because of the jobs they did, because of the kind of communities they had. And that excited me because it wasn't just some random murder bolted on for the, the sake of a puzzle. Mm. And so that, that just grabbed me and excited me. And I thought, this is the kind of book I want to write. And that was that was a sort of I think a start of a change and a shift in, in British crime fiction. I was writing at the same time starting out as writers like John Harvey and Ian Rankin and we were writing books that were set outside that sort of metropolitan and home counties bubble. We were writing regional crime fiction. Reginald Hill had already done this with the D.L. and Pascoe novels but we were taking it a bit further and, and relocating crime to the sort of places like Dashiell Hammett said, the kind of places where it actually happened. Mm. Um, and so that was one of the big changes. And I think what's also changed is, is that the, the, whole, uh, the whole envelope of crime writing, if you like, has expanded and become bigger and bigger. And really, there's no kind of novel you can't write now within that umbrella of, of crime fiction. You can write any kind of tone, you can set it in any 
any environment. You can even set it in outer space, like Chris Brookmeyer's last book. Um, so the the boundaries have just been pushed out further and further, and that I think that's been the most exciting change I've seen. Do you think that's a natural progression and it's going to keep going that way, or do you think it will collapse back in on itself? Or don't every time people say, "Oh, well, there's nothing new in crime fiction," somebody pushes out in a new direction, and 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 you don't you think, "Oh, nice, that's interesting." <laughs> and one of the things I do every year, um, I I host the New Blood panel at the Harrogate uh, Theakston's Crime Writing Festival. Uh, and so I read a lot of debut novels every year, and that's really exciting because you get to see what new writers coming into the field are, are excited about and the things that they're writing about and, and the ways that they're writing, and that's something that, that keeps me on my toes. Um, I want to ask a little bit about How the Dead Speak because um, it's a fantastic book and I want to sell lots of it. Thank you. Um, I'm eagerly, eagerly awaited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. um, I want to stress to um, listeners that... Uh, um, that these these characters have a deep and complex history, but this book can be read um, by itself without having known that history. It is completely um, rewarding. Um, somehow you've managed to uh, hold on to um, this, the complication, the layers of history you've sort of put into these characters over the years, and and it's become sort of energy for this novel, and it um, adds on to it. Um, do you do you find the um, those history of those characters? that sort of weigh down on you as you as you write or does it as that fuel for the fire do you you relish being it's, able to return to them it's absolutely fuel to the fire mm. um this this series did not start off as a series when i wrote the mermaid singing all those years ago it was intended to be a standalone and i suppose with that in mind i've tried to write each of the books uh in such a way that it can be read on its own but if you read them in sequence, you get you get a sort of richer effect and a broader understanding of how they got to be the people they are and how they got to be in the place that they're in, which is frankly not a good place. <laughs> um, but but I think it's getting slightly better. Um, and, and every time I write one of these books, as I get towards the end, I start to see where the next book might go, uh, where the next book might take me, what the possibilities are. Uh, so. Self-perpetuating. Yeah, and one of these things I think about modern crime fiction is that we expect characters to absorb their past and carry it with them. They don't just shrug it off like Miss Marple. I mean, you know, she yeah. never she never sits down and goes like, "How is it that all my friends are dead?" <laughs> there's no and, and and there's no change of development. It doesn't matter what order you read the books in; she's still the same, except that her arthritis gets a bit worse <laughs> in the later novels. But I think readers now expect their characters to 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 carry the burden of their past. And writers, too, want to write books that are, I think, perhaps, in, in terms of characterization, sort of richer and fuller. Mm. But what amazes me so much, because that's become so much part of the genre, is uh, the writers who can balance the backstory of, and the development of their character with telling a complete story. And it's something that you do so, so well, because, I like, it's one of the... You're one of the authors where I know I can pick up any book from any of the series and just say, um, try it, you'll love it. And it doesn't, you know, you'll, you'll hook readers. Um, is it hard Is it hard for you to do it? Is it organic? I just really want to know. I, I, it's very kind of you to say all these lovely <laughs> things. I'm getting quite embarrassed here. Um, but it's, I, I suppose it's it's something I've got over the years. I've, I've, I've kind of absorbed the understanding of how I do it or how to do mm. it. And so when I sit down to do it, uh, before I start, I'm thinking about where are they going to go with this book? How do I factor in what happened in the last book? 
And usually I've had a year or so away from the characters before I come back to them. So there's a sort of excitement, a freshness yes. of what, where, where have we got to since, since we last saw you? And, and what changes has the last book meant for you? Uh, and so I'm kind of interrogating the characters in my head, I suppose, uh, and that helps me move forward with it. Mm. And, at, and at the centre of this book, there's a kind of perfect storm um, of crime-ness <laughs> that I'm not going to spoil. But there's yeah. a lot of crime-ness. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of crime-ness in here because because I had I, you know I had characters who all had to be doing something, but not necessarily in a particularly joined up way at the beginning. Yeah, mm. yeah. Both Tony and and Carol are, are both on the periphery. From the beginning of this, um, uh, Tony is locked up in a cell and he's composing this beautiful academic novel, not novel, book, yeah. um, reading crimes. And uh, Carol is dealing with some very heavy trauma and um, and she eventually steps into this new sort of justice project. Both really interesting sort of outside factors. Um, can you speak a bit to both of those? And did well, you know when you were finishing the last book that that's kind of where it was or did it have to kind of marinate for a while i didn't i didn't know when i finished the last one how this one was going to start how they were going to i was going to um have them set up because mm. you say tony's in jail and and carol's on the, sort of the other side of the the, the, the city the other side of the, the other side of the story and they're not really communicating at all except through paula and then you've still got the the the, the remit team in the middle who are actually solving proper crimes, <laughs> um, and uh, so t uh, Tony's writing his book and doing various things within the prison, and Carol's uh, trying to put herself back together again. And I had to find a way to to make that interesting, but also to find ways for those those uh, stories to intersect. Uh, and you make the stories intersect through the people, through the characters. They intersect because these characters have known each other for a long time and they talk to each other. And so they can reach out for help when they need it, or they can reach out with ideas when they want to offer them. And that's that's kind of how the, the sort of knitting together happens in, in the book, is start off in three different places, but uh, you end up uh, bringing things much closer together. And because you sort of mentioned that as you're wrapping up a book, you're a little bit thinking about the next one or getting an idea for where the next one would go. I'm afraid to ask this as such a fan of the series, but do you have an idea in your mind of how many more um, Tony Hill stories there might be? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, I, I, I've never had any idea of an overall arc of the series. It's just mm. book on book. Yeah. And so I finished this one, and right this minute, I can't promise there'll be another one. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that. You know, it's it's a bit like you know, writers, writing is a bit like being a shark. You've got to keep moving forward or you die. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and you know, the, there are there. Are, I don't know. I don't know is the answer. I yeah. don't have. I don't have any uh, overarching plan. Yeah. It goes. Every series goes from book to book, and, and characters sometimes just stop speaking to you. Mm. You know, I didn't intend to finish the Kate Brannigan series where I did. But she just stopped speaking to me. The stories, the kind of stories she could tell were not the stories that were clamouring in, in my head to be told. And I, I've, I've, I've always had the privilege of, of having publishers who have let me write the book I wanted to write. Yeah. Mm. And thankfully, I've by and large taken my readers with me. Although every now and again I do something that people get very upset about and <laughs> send me rude emails and things. Uh, <gasps> what are some examples? Oh, I got one the other week there. You know, throughout throughout my writing career, I've I've, I've you know taken the odd side swipe at politicians of, of pretty much every <laughs> colour across the spectrum. But I had this email from uh, a man in America 
who didn't like the fact that I had dissed uh, President Trump in the last Karen Piri book. And uh, this, this, this email began, you hag. Oh, oh great. What? And, and ended up, P.S., lose weight, get a haircut and contact lenses. That's appalling. <laughs> Are you like, that? it's President Hag, thinks all the same. <laughs> <laughs> what? So you just have to laugh, you know, if somebody gets so upset because you've... you've That's appalling. That's just, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. What do you do when you receive something so hateful? Do you I just laugh? <laughs> just laugh at it, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's it's clearly, clearly messed up his day big time. <laughs> And well, that's, you know, maybe that's, he got something off his chest and maybe he can yeah. be a nice man now. Maybe. I doubt yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And you get <laughs> to be not. the internationally best-selling author who laughs at that yes. and he has to be the horrible person who exactly. wrote it. Exactly. So. You know, who's the winner here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I, I really enjoyed this because I could feel you enjoying writing the book, going back to what we were talking about earlier. And um, one of the things that um, shines out at me from this book is um, these little um, fun tongue-in-cheek quips you make about... Um, police procedurals and particularly about crime shows um do you binge watch crime shows or only wire in the blood <laughs> <laughs> um i do we do watch we watch crime shows and i watch other kind of drama as well but yeah we do we do binge things from time to time um we didn't dare start the new series of mindhunter because <gasps> i was coming over to the antipodes and i didn't know if we'd be able to get it on netflix here so oh. we didn't start yet so that's waiting um for when we go to New Zealand, and if it's if it's there, then yes, we'll have that probably I'm in two jealous. nights. I'm jealous. I'd Excellent. like to watch it again for the first time. Yeah, um, and and we watch watch all sorts of stuff, um, and play computer games and kill people and things, you know. <laughs> and we have you tantalised us a little bit before the podcast with um, some looks at your private library. Uh, do you have you know? Are you comfortable to talk about a recent favourite that you might have read? Uh, yeah, actually, I've, I've just read a couple of, of advanced proofs of books that will be coming out uh, in the not-too-distant future that I really loved. I mean, uh, I had a very busy summer, very busy August with the Edinburgh Book Festival and other commitments, and so I was having to do a lot of reading for specific events that I was either curating or, or that I was chairing. Um, so Plus there's the band. Plus there's yes. the band, yeah. But when I got <laughs> to the end of, of that, um, I, I sort of grabbed some some of these new books coming out that I thought looked interesting. And I, and I just completely loved the new Nikki French book, The Lying Room, which is out, I think, next month. Um, and one by a, a, a Scottish writer called Doug Johnson, who also happens to be the drummer in my band. But this is a book called A Dark Matter, and it's wonderful. I loved every minute of it. It's got a great premise. It's a funeral home and undertakers run by three generations of women. And the patriarch of this family has just died and there's all sorts of secrets and lies going on around that. And as well as being undertakers, they're also private investigators. Oh. And it's just a great, <laughs> brilliant setup, great characterization and a terrific read. Um, oh. So keep an eye out for that one, a dark matter. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, um, uh, something we talked to Michael Robotham a bit, bit about when he was in, um, oh, is this phenomenon of um, the journalist turned crime writer Mm-hmm. Um, uh, your one, he's one. A uh, uh, couple of recent breakout Australian authors, you know, uh, Jane Harper and Chris Hammer. Mm-hmm. They were both journalists. Is that a happy coincidence in your mind, or is it perhaps that that um, sort of discipline and an economy of words you could learn as a journalist, or is it the um, is it the wealth of material you might encounter as a journalist that you think lends to the second career? I think I think you do acquire a discipline as as, as a journalist. Uh, 
you, you learn not to be precious about writing. You know, you don't have to sit and wait for the muse to strike because, frankly, you can't say to the news editor, I'm sorry, my muse is not with me today. I can't cover the train crash. <laughs> You've got to do it when the story happens. Uh, and, and, and you learn that discipline very quickly. <laughs> And so uh, when you come to sitting down and writing a novel, you, you, you think, well, OK, this, this is today's task. I have to, have to do this much or I have to get to this point. Um, but I think uh, the other thing that journalists take away from their years in the game is it's not so much the incidents, it's the people, it's the characters. Over a journalistic career, you, you meet all sorts of people from the highest in the land to the lowest in the land. And you generally see them in a time of crisis. You, journalists don't turn up on an ordinary day. Either something really bad has happened or something really good has happened. So you get exposure to people in their homes, in their workplaces, in their leisure lives, and, and you just get this great data set of how people behave and how people act and how people interact. And that's a great resource for a writer of fiction. Yeah, I guess I never realised the extraordinary people-watching opportunities that come <laughs> on the side of that job. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a long time since I, I gave up the day job in 1991, which is quite a long time ago now. But I still have this great set of, 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 of memories, of, of experiences, of, of watching people and listening to people and seeing how they react and, and seeing mm. how they behave. And, and to say how they interact, which is often uh, the most interesting thing of all. So that stuff's all there. And I still people watch, you know, when I'm on the bus, I watch what people are doing. If I'm in a cafe, I watch what they're doing. Eavesdrop on conversations at the next table, you know. <laughs> you never know when you're going to hear something really cracking. It's, I, think, I think I sometimes drive my family slightly mad because we're, you know, we're all out for a meal or something like that. And, and suddenly my, I, my head's sort of like leaning towards the next table uh, <laughs> because they're having a really interesting argument or something, you know. Life with a yeah. writer in the family. Yeah. <laughs> and one other thing we've been desperate to ask you about is uh, your experience with the Booker, because the uh, the shortlist for this year's prize has just been announced, and there's a lot of speculation and excitement, particularly around Margaret Atwood. Um, uh, you were a judge. Um, how were you selected? What was what's the what, you, what even is the criteria to pick a Booker winner? You know, how, talk us through the process. What were the highlights? What were the lowlights? I don't know why I was selected. I, I would, they just called me up and asked me. Just got a tap on the shoulder. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and and I thought about it. And I thought and I discussed it with my my immediate circle, with my with my partner and my and my publicist, just um, <laughs> my immediate circle. And they both said, "Go for it, go for it." Um, and uh, so I went for it. Uh, and I think what each judge brings to it, I suppose, is their own vision of what a really good book is. I mean, we're supposed to be picking the best novel of the year. Uh, and for me, I mean, I'm, I'm looking for something that's, that's well-written, that's well-told, uh, that coheres as a narrative and that is exciting and fresh and that I haven't heard before. And that was what I started out with, with that as my, my criteria. Uh, and, the, I mean, I, I thought it was, we had a really civilised judging process. Anthony Apaya, who was the chair of the judges, is a philosopher, and he set the tone of being very considered and that we would listen to each other and we would give weight to what other, the other said and there would be no horse trading and there would be no tantrums. <laughs> and that was how it went. And we, we had a very civilised time of it. We discussed things with passion, um, but, but consideration for each other's views. Uh, and I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I read every word of every one of the 171 books because that would be disingenuous. 
um, it's much easier to spot a book that isn't going to win the booker than it is to, to choose the ones that are likely to have a chance. Mm. But I think we had a really exciting long list and a, and a really exciting short list, and I, I, feel, I, feel we did a, I feel proud of the job that we did. And I, led, I read a lot of things that would not normally have crossed my desk, and I surprised myself by some of the, the books that I, I really got into and really loved uh, in that process. It changed the shape of your library a little bit? It did, yes, it did. 171 extra books. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, and, it, and it opened my eyes, I think, I suppose, to, to, to maybe try and be a bit more challenging with, about my own process. Mm. Val, thank you so much for giving us some time today. Um, got a very busy tour schedule, so we're going to let you get back to it. Um, yeah, thank you. It's, it's a such honor. an honor. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's not an honor. It's just a blather. You know, it's, just, it's a really cool here. thing that's happening. For your Majesty. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> and you can buy How the Dead Speak or any of Val's books at booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au.